Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, brought to you by Pazina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. Today's episode is a recording from our recent 2023 Mid-Year Outlook for Global Value webinar, featuring founder, co-CIO, and portfolio manager Rich Pazina, portfolio manager Miklos Vassarelli, and director of national accounts Peter Quinn. This podcast is presented by Pazina Investment Management, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor, and is intended for institutional investors and financial professionals only. The views expressed reflect the current views of Bazina as of the date hereof, and are subject to change. There is no guarantee that any projection, forecast, or opinion in this material will be realized. Past performance is not indicative of future results. In the UK, this podcast is only for professional clients and eligible counterparties, as defined by the Financial Conduct Authority. This marketing communication is presented by Pazina Investment Management Limited, which is an appointed representative of Vittoria and Partners LLP. Vittoria and Partners is authorized and regulated by the FCA. Good afternoon, everyone. Certainly good morning or good evening, depending on where you're dialing in from. My name is Peter Quinn. I am a director of intermediary distribution with Pazina Investment Management. And on behalf of all of my colleagues, I'd like to welcome you to our mid-year global outlook, uh, the outlook for value. With me, as you can see, I have a couple of my colleagues. We have Rich Pazina, who is our founder, co-chief investment officer, and portfolio manager on many of our U.S. strategies. And we also have Miklos Vassarelli, who is a portfolio manager on our European value strategies. In this edition, what we look to do or what we will cover is our essentially detail the mega cap growth rally, the state of the state as it relates to banking, and then finally we'll also discuss the opportunity in value. Um, with that, I'm sure most of you are familiar with Pazina Investment Management. We were founded in 1995. We are a deep value or classic value firm whose research really focuses on, in on a, com a company's ability to return itself to normalized earnings. At the end of Q2, our assets under management stood at 56 billion, which is a high watermark for our firm. Before we really get into it, a couple of housekeeping items. We're gonna be recording this and we will post it to our website for future reference. Our comments are gonna be about 25 to 30 minutes, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. Many of you did submit questions uh, when you registered, and we certainly appreciate that, in that we wanna really talk about what you wanna talk about. So there is also still time, if you would like to, to submit a question via the chat box. And finally, we uh, endeavor to wrap this up at about, say, quarter to the hour. So with that, before we really get into the specific markets, uh, Rich, I'm sure everyone's interested in learning how the transition has gone for you since you, uh, Caroline, formally took over your CEO duties. Well, I, I don't know whether this is the, the, a reasonable way to put it, but I feel like I've died and gone to heaven. Um, the, the, you know, when you start an investment firm, and you're struggling at the beginning, what you're doing is investing. Um, and it's what I've loved my whole life. 
And as firms grow, and you heard that we're at $56 billion today, the, um, the issues of running the firm start to encroach on what you really love doing. Um, so it also takes a lot of energy to, to uh, orchestrate the operations of a global firm and deal with all the, the personalities that exist. So um, as you start to age, and I hate to use that language because I don't feel like I'm aging, um, you realize what, that uh, doing what you really love to do is, is paramount and, um, and the ability to do the other part of the job becomes more and more difficult. And so we had a plan in place over the last few years to, to do this transition. Uh, and the only thing that I can say is it, it is going so much better than I even imagined. Um, in the firm, the transition has been very smooth. Uh, I have, I no longer attend management meetings, executive committee meetings, um, and everything is being handled, I'm going to say brilliantly, by the new team. Uh, they're also dealing with uh, uh, their, their own focus on putting their own mark on the firm. Uh, and, and all I can say is I've been pleased. I've been able to spend my time now um, focusing on our in, uh, on, on our portfolios, on our, primarily on our domestic portfolios, because that's, that's where my responsibility is, working with our research team, uh, working with our portfolio managers, trying to develop um, analysts into investors, and really just doing the fun part of the job. So uh, it's been fantastic. I don't have any other word for it. Oh, that's great. Well, why don't, from here, why don't we maybe start talking markets. Uh, Miklos, why don't we kick it off with you. Um, maybe your comments on probably the worst six-month period for value on record. Any thoughts on that front? Yeah, thanks, Peter, and uh, hi, everyone. So, uh, Peter, as you mentioned, it's been a really interesting and also very challenging first half of the year with value underperforming growth by a staggering 23 percentage points uh, on a global basis. And in fact, just to put this into historical context, uh, the first half of 2023 was the second worst period for value versus growth that we've seen in the past 50 years. Uh, not surprisingly, you know, the, the worst period that we saw was the first half of 2020 uh, during the depths of the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, but to actually go back and find the third and fourth worst periods for value versus growth, uh, you have to go back almost 25 years to you know, the peaks of, of the dot-com bubble in uh, the late 1990s. What, what's interesting about this performance, and if you kind of dig into it in a little bit more detail, and particularly on a regional basis, is you saw a huge divergence in growth versus value performance across uh, geography. So not surprisingly, you know, the, the lion's share of the underperformance was driven by the U.S., uh, where growth uh, outperformed value by 24 percentage points. Um, outside of the U.S., you know, there still was a, a material value headwind. Uh, growth outperformed value by about five percentage points. So still a meaningful headwind, but, you know, a much smaller number than, than the 24 percent uh, we saw uh, here in the U.S. 
And then if you kind of dig in a little bit deeper, you know, I think we saw a reasonable headwind for value in Europe. Uh, but in contrast to that, in emerging markets, actually value slightly outperformed growth in that market. And you know, the, the main driver of this, and you know, I'm sure Rich will get into this a little bit later on, uh, has just really been the, the performance of technology, uh, particularly the beloved U.S. mega cap uh, tech stocks. So I think in the U.S., tech is up about 45% you know, year to date and tech accounts for about 30% of the U.S. index. And then you contrast that to outside of the U.S., you know, tech has been strong, up about 25% year-to-date, uh, but tech only accounts for 8% of the index. And really, when you think about it, there just aren't any you know, beloved, large, global tech companies um, outside of the U.S. And even the, the stocks that we would think of, kind of like Alibaba or Tencent, have first kind of fallen from their pedestals uh, that we saw kind of in the in the in 2020 and 2021, uh, and then on top of that, they actually aren't even technically classified as tech; they're technically classified as uh, consumer discretionary and communication services stocks. Yeah, interesting point, um, Rich. Maybe you can add some context in terms of the U.S. underperformance. Well, it's a it's been a very unusual year. I mean. We started the year um, in, in a euphoric state for value, like January and February, or January, I don't even know if it lasted into February, but certainly the first six weeks of the, of the year, um, it, it looked like a continuation of the value recovery that we've been waiting for a decade for. Um, and it, it was characterized really by a, um, a, a, a con continuation of economic recovery post-COVID. Um, we, we've had fears of recession that have been on the investors' minds literally for 10 years. I think we've been thinking about the next recession. And then we got it in COVID. But that didn't really count, or that's, it didn't, it obviously felt like it counted at the time. But now in retrospect, it's just something that we, we, we ignore in the history books. Um, and we were kind of in that interest rates are rising, inflation is, is, is raising its head, that, that calls into question valuations for the high flyers, and there was no real recession, even though it was predicted. And then we started, get, we started into a banking crisis. Um, and that banking crisis uh, took all the sails out of the wind of, of value philosophy um, and value stocks. Um, and so we watched as all of the euphoria for us turned into euphoria for tech. Um, and, and obviously, artificial intelligence and, the, and, and the, the, the future prospects that you could now attribute to these growth stocks while con convincing ourselves that we don't have to worry about interest rates being high for a long time because now the long-awaited recession is really here kicked off by something maybe we didn't anticipate, 
or we didn't anticipate in the extremes that, are, that, that happened. And so there was a three-month uh, real reversal. And, and so much of what Miklos talked about happened in that three-month period. Um, and then it looks like it's turned again. Um, June and July, certainly for, for what I would call deeper value strategies like ours, started to, to grow, I don't know, versus the growth indices, but certainly versus broad market like the S&P, which is, which is dominated by um, um, many of these uh, tech giants. Um, and so by the time we get to today, uh, we, we, our, our domestic equity performance in large cap has close to caught up to the S&P 500. Um, obviously not to the growth stock indices. Um, so, so I would say as we feel it today, um, as deep value investors, we've, we've, we're having a really good year against our value benchmarks. Um, we feel like the, in, the environment for investing for us is kind of normal. Um, the, the recession that everybody's afraid of may, maybe is delayed. It's prob maybe it's just going to be a muddle through. Obviously, nobody knows this. Um, but we, we've, again, had a pretty good environment in the last two months. So these are, these are very short-term uh, analysis, but, I, but I'd say that that is indicative of what is going on in, in the U.S. market. Just as a quick reminder, if you'd like to submit a question, you can do so via the chat box. And Rich, you kind of touched on it. So shifting gears a bit, um, if we were having this webinar three months ago, it would have been 45 minutes of banks. Are we out of the woods yet? Kind of where we are, uh, where would you say we're on that front? Well, I mean, we, we clearly identified some flawed banking strategies of, 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 of banks that got a company accustomed to low interest rates and um, had built great deposit franchises uh, that they were paying no interest on and used that money to, uh, to invest longer term, whether in securities or for the benefit of their own clients. Uh, and we clearly saw the shortcomings of those, that kind of strategy. Even though those shortcomings are, you know, for anybody who's been through a economics or business program, it's like the first week of the first day of your banking class um, is asset liability matching. And what we found, what you see is that most banks didn't get extreme on that. And, and so we, we, I'll say weeded out, it's a harsh comment to make, but we, we lost some good banking franchises because of the way they managed their, their balance sheets. Um, and credit didn't come into play. So now that some of the, some of the fears of certainty of recession are easing, um, the, the, the 
potential credit losses that might inflict bank balance sheets uh, are no longer a big concern. And so the market is, I think, for the most part, putting this past us. It doesn't mean that there is no chance that it resurrects. Obviously, we, we could. The, 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 the dilemma is the things that people worry about most, which are recession and or continuing rising interest rates, one of the two, it's pretty hard for both of those to happen at the same time. Um, and I think it would require both of those happening to get us to the kind of crisis that people at least were dreaming of in the negative bank scenario. Got it. Now, Miklos, obviously, the situation in Europe is a bit different. Maybe some color on that front? Yeah, so I'd say in contrast to the U.S. banks, and, and I'd say with the exception of uh, Credit Suisse, which we view as very much a company-specific incident, uh, the European banks year-to-date have actually been relatively immune to the headwinds faced by the U.S. regional banks. Uh, in fact, actually, in the, in the second quarter, uh, financials were, were the best was the best-performing sector in Europe. Um, and that's really helped drive the uh, the European bank index up 13% in the first half of the year. And you know, just to put that in context, that's in contrast to the the 30% year-to-date uh, decline that we saw with the the U.S. regional banks. So I, I think the the reason why the the European banks have just held up so much better uh, is that the issues that brought down you know Silicon Valley Bank and then subsequently. Uh, First Republic Bank are, you know, in our view, largely U.S. regional bank specific and also are relatively immaterial to the European banks. Um, and the reason why that's the case is that European banks are just subject to much more stringent regulation. Um, so the, the European banks are regulated under Basel. Um, so that means that their balance sheets, uh, specifically their, their capital levels and their securities books, kind of rec um, currently reflect the current higher interest rate environment. So kind of said another way, kind of there are no unrecognized or hidden holes or, or losses, you know, embedded on their balance sheets. Um, also on top of that, you know, just entering this mini banking crisis, uh, the European banks um, just had much higher capital and liquidity levels. But um, I think you know, while European banks and banks for broadly are cheaper, you know, it's important are cheap. It's important to be very selective about which franchises you own. Um, so, you know, from a Pazina standpoint, the, the banks that we own in Europe are industry leaders, and I'm specifically talking about banks like ING, the the market leader in Belgium and the Netherlands. You know, Caixa Bank, the largest bank in Spain, uh, NatWest Group in, in the UK, and as market leaders. Uh, these banks have very diverse customer bases, and they also have a much higher mix of retail and insured deposits, uh, which would help them in the event of a deposit run. And then I think that the most important point is because they are leaders, they actually, in our view, would be the beneficiaries of any sort of flight to safety. So, you know, in March of this year, the big U.S. banks like Bank of America or J.P. Morgan were kind of raking in deposits. Uh, we think that if we saw any sort of similar turmoil in Europe, it would be the INGs, NatWests, and Caixas that would actually be taking in deposits. Um, and then lastly, just on the European banks, and I think per, perhaps most importantly, is 
you know, here we are, you know, four months after the, the collapse of SVB, and we just haven't seen any signs of a deposit run or turmoil with the, the European commercial banks. Um, and this has just been further reinforced with, you know, first quarter and second quarter earnings releases. Um, and then just briefly on emerging market banks, I'd say like the Europeans, uh, the Euro emerging market banks have also been relatively immune from the turmoil seen in the U.S. banking sector. Um, similarly, like the Europeans, they're regulated under Basel. Um, also, just because of the nature of being emerging market banks, uh, they're used to operating in you know, volatile, um, volatile environments with high fluctuations in, in interest rates. Uh, and then similarly, we also own market-leading banks in emerging markets. So we own OTP, the, the market leader in Hungary, you know, Shinhan Financial Group, uh, a leading bank in Korea, Itaú, um, one of the highest quality banks in, in Brazil. So really it's about just leaning into the, the quality market-leading franchises in Europe and emerging markets. Great. You know, it might be interesting uh, to widen out the aperture a little bit. Rich, where is the team currently finding opportunities? I mean, what are you really excited about? Well, it's in the opportunities, if, you, if I had to put them in sectoral contact, which I can do, um, it, it is more, it, there's, there's more company specific going on now in, in our opportunity list than I would say broad themes. But I'll, I'll reach for the broad themes because they're, they're themes for sure. I don't know how broad they are. One, one is life insurance. Um, life insurance companies have um, typically invested heavily in commercial real estate and given or lent, more lent to commercial real estate than um, our equity owners in commercial real estate. And so with, the, with what the, what's kind of viewed as an obvious disaster for office in the United States, um, these companies have been hit pretty hard, or had been. They've started to recover a bit already, but they had been hit pretty hard. Um, and and when you start digging into the to the balance sheets and the investment portfolios of 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 these institutions, first of all, they don't have the liquidity risk that uh, that happens in a bank. So when you when you lock into a long term investment and you're a bank and you have your depositors flee, it, it's trouble. Um, life insurance, people make long-term commitments to life insurance and to cancel a life insurance policy that, has already, that you've already been paying into and written um, come with generally substantial surrender fees and charges. And so you just don't see it happening. Um, and, and with higher interest rates, um, the ability to, some, to modestly outperform the, the, um, the rate assumptions you made when you underwrote these policies um, is, is, a, is an offset. So the, the question is, how bad can the commercial real estate be? Um, and and when, you, when you start underwriting, and again, I'll use Miklos' uh, language on if you go to the quality franchises that have that have 
not reached for yield um, and, and not um, gone for high loan to value. In fact, you don't see much high loan to value commercial real estate lending in big institutions like insurance companies or even in banks. They tend to take the first liens. Their underwriting has been generally conservative, particularly on office. The, the share of the commercial real estate portfolio that's actually in office and the share of that office that's in the cities that we all read about being disasters like New York and San Francisco, um, make it hard to, to reach proportions where the capital adequacy of these life insurance companies are going to be questioned. There's always a risk. You can't say it's zero. But, you know, when the price to book values of these companies drop to 50 or 60 cents on the dollar and most of the book value is low risk, reasonable yielding investment securities or, or um, even commercial real estate loans at low, low loan to values, you sort of say, um, it, this is an interesting area. Um, I'd also, and I'll, then I'll, I'll switch gears completely, um, because there, there have been, one of the things that has, that happened during COVID is the buying patterns of what people buy changed dramatically, totally unanticipated. So we're staying at home and you stop traveling, you stop, um, eating out and instead spend money on stuff. And so we had a big year, a big year or two of spending money on stuff and, and entertaining ourselves at home. I guess I would use those two. Um, and then when, when the, what, when we had such strong retail sales as a result, um, it led to buying, um, lots of stuff and then retailers being optimistic about that that would continue on and it hasn't. Um, and so it backs up into the chain and that, that backup goes first from the retailers having excess inventory, then cutting their orders back. And so the manufacturers of those products start to, um, be negatively impacted as those inventories are worked off. And then finally it backs up into the commodity markets. And we've see, we see that um, of interest on the, in chemicals be a good example. So we've seen a lot of chemical names that um, where they're all guiding down on near-term earnings. It's part of this, it's what it part of what creates the fears of economic downturn in the world, but I think mostly it's an, it's an inventory cycle. That, that's a typical correction without major excesses. So it appears manageable. And, and when you can buy good chemical franchises that are on the low end of their long-term earnings range because of the short-term um, economic pressures, uh, these are interesting as well. Um, 
And then it's very company specific. I, I, I noticed that there was a question in the chat box about Citibank. So I'll just bring that up right now since it's one of our bigger holdings. Um, this is where the company specific stuff comes in. Um, so Citibank has been an, been an out of favor company for really since the financial crisis, maybe even earlier. Um, and and th there's, a, there's a, a major underlying business that Citigroup in, is, dominates that is the key to its franchise, which is the corporate cash management and deposits where they have something like a trillion and a half dollars in corporate deposits. Now these don't, aren't as glamorous as retail deposits because you can't pay zero on corporate deposits. But um, when you have a franchise that, that um, and we've talked for many, many years about how bank deposit franchises are one of the best consumer franchises that exist. People just rarely change their banking accounts, no matter what. Like they pay you no interest and you keep your banking account. You may, when you get spreads like we have now, um, pull some of your money out and put it in a money market fund so some of the deposits might go away, but the relationship with the banks just don't. And on corporate banking, it's even stickier because these are highly integrated. And so for companies that, that have global multi-currency business complexity, there aren't a lot of options for banking relationships. And Citi is one of the strongest here. And obviously, they're going through big restructuring as they exit some of their historical franchise, which was the consumer-based lending businesses throughout the world, where they were at one time unique, now no longer unique. But generally speaking, they're exiting these franchises at better than book value. Um, and they have a very valuable business that Yet they have underinvested in technology and systems for many, many years. It's led to regulatory problems. So we're in a multi-year period where the, there's a, uh, an opportunity, and this is the only time you get opportunities like this, to buy a, a franchise like that for, as we see it, something like five times its long-term earnings power and close to half of its book value, um, or slightly more than half of its book value is a better way to put it. So um, that, that, that's where there are company specifics. And those kind of company specifics are more, are more um, uh, important in the opportunity set that we see today than broad themes. Okay, that's some great insight. Miklos, um, how about from your perspective, from the European perspective? Yeah, so on a, on a broader basis and for the market as a whole, um, international markets are trading at a, a material discount to, to the U.S. So just to put that into context, you know, non-U.S. markets on average are trading at 13 times forward earnings uh, relative to about 20 times uh, in the U.S. And as a result of that, the, just the cheaper starting points of valuation, uh, we are seeing good opportunities across the globe in you know, Japan and emerging markets. But I would say in particular, Europe stands out as being very cheap to us. 
And you know, as, as Rich mentioned earlier when he was talking about the U.S., um, Europe faces some of the similar issues that other developed markets do in the sense of you know, stubbornly high inflation, you know, it's resulted in a sharp increase in interest rates, um, all of which led to you know, fears of a, of a recession. Uh, so Europe's suffering from those headwinds, uh, but it's also suffering from its own unique geographic headwinds. And namely, you know, I'm talking about the, the war in Ukraine. You know, here we are 18 months later, and that's still ongoing. Um, soaring energy costs and you know, fears of energy shortages with the curtailment of access to uh, cheap Russian natural gas. Uh, and then, of course, you know, just continued uh, fiscal and political dysfunction, you know, whether it's the revolving door of the prime ministership of the UK, um, whatever is the latest and greatest in the Italian political situation, or even just uh, the Spanish elections uh, that we saw uh, this past weekend. So, you know, all of this is just really weighing on European valuations, uh, particularly the valuations for, for European value stocks. So uh, European value stocks, um, they have recovered from kind of the, the peak fear that we saw at the end of 2022, uh, but on an absolute basis still remain very cheap, you know, trading at, you know, on average, you know, eight times forward earnings. So uh, if you just go back in history, you know, the last time you were able to buy, you know, European value stocks at these kind of valuations was, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. And I'm talking about kind of the, the depths of the global financial crisis or uh, the Eurozone crisis. Um, and, you know, this preference and, and view for Europe is, uh, is also reflected in our other strategies. So um, we have been, we are more exposed to and have been adding more European names in our, in our global and uh, in international strategies as well. And maybe just briefly on a, on a sector basis, uh, it still remains, um, we're still seeing more opportunities in, in cyclicals. So, you know, banks, um, I talked a little bit about, um, you know, it, their banks are trading at, you know, six times forward earnings, kind of a 40 to 45% discount uh, to the broader market. And, you know, this is the, you know, I think in the last 20 years, uh, banks have traded at this level of discount maybe 10% of the time. So it's so very cheap and we have the opportunity to buy, you know, leading franchises that I talked about earlier, like ING and, and NatWest Group. I would say outside of that, um, also seeing some great opportunities in consumer discretionary and industrials. So, you know, you know for example, at consumer discretionary, um, we've, uh, one of our bigger positions is uh, Michelin, the, the global leader in, in tires. This is a very high quality franchise has great pricing power. Um, I'd emphasize it's a, it's a global business. So it's a, this is a theme that we're seeing where companies are being penalized because they're headquartered or perceived as being European when actually you know, the majority of Michelin's earnings come from markets outside of, of Europe. Um, and on top of that, you know, we think Michelin should be a, a structural beneficiary of the transition from combustion engines to uh, electric vehicles, which are heavier, and just as a result of that, require uh, much higher performance tires. So, you know, we're able to buy Michelin at you know six times our view of the, the longer-term earnings potential of that business. Uh, in industrials, you know, a position we've been adding to is our position in Randstad. This is a temporary staffing company, uh, one of the market leaders in, in that business. Um, it's clearly been weak because of recession fears. If, you know, if the recession does hit, it will uh, hurt Randstad's business in the short term. But 
what we like about Randstad is it's got a strong balance sheet, uh, a nice counter cyclical cash flow profile that should uh, support the dividend even in stressed periods. Uh, but longer term, um, this is a it operates in a highly fragmented market, the, the temporary staffing market. So uh, we just think Randstad, um, given its scale and size advantage and its ability to invest in its digital capabilities, uh, make it a structural share gainer. And we've seen this, and we saw this during the pandemic, uh, and we're able to to pick up this business at similarly, you know, five or six times our, our view of the the longer term earnings potential for, for that business. Um, and just briefly, you know, I think outside of Europe in, in emerging markets, I think one theme that we're seeing is, you know, markets outside of China are doing well, and then China is struggling. And China's struggling, I think, for a number of reasons. I think there was a lot of enthusiasm about, you know, the recovery we would see in China from the end of the, the COVID lockdowns earlier this year. And, that really hasn't materialized. And then you layer in uh, the headwinds of kind of an uncertain regulatory environment, and then just continued you know, geopolitical you know, concerns uh, surrounding that market. So as a result of that, in our emerging market strategy, we've been adding to our Chinese holdings. You know, some of the newer holdings we added are a position in hire, the, the leading uh, home appliance company, uh, as well as a position in Weichai Power, which is a, a leading manufacturer of uh, engines for, for trucks. Okay. So I think um, at this point, let's move on to Q&A. We've received several via the chat box and I'm gonna consolidate them. So Rich, this might be a good one for you. Uh, in your estimation, what will slow down the growth of the seven largest companies? Well, I guess the question me the question is what will slow down the growth in their share prices or the growth in their businesses because the growth in the businesses has already slowed down. Um, when you look at the big I, uh, the seven that I guess we're all talking about the same seven, um, if you look backwards for the last five years or so, these companies have all been growing in the twenties and thirties, top line, bottom line. And with only one exception, they're not anymore. Um, that exception's NVIDIA, which has just has had spectacular success. Um, the rest are now just growing in valuation. Um, and so to me, now there's hope. I'm not saying there's not hope, We're, but this is what the, is happening. We're, we're excited about artificial intelligence and the impacts that that will have on the future of these companies, and that may be. Um, but they're not. Uh, they, they've stepped down in growth versus where they were before, and um, and, and 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 it's hope at this point in time. Um, obviously, that's not our area of expertise. So you're asking me to to comment on hope, and we don't invest on that basis. So that, that's a better question for others. I do think, though, the impact on markets is huge, right? When you, when you look at how concentrated those names are in the indices, or particularly in the growth index. I, 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 I was looking this morning at these, um, these indices, and the Russell 1000 growth, two-thirds of its value is from 25 stocks. Um, 
So th this is very different than anything that we've seen before. Um, but I, I, I actually think what we see in the markets today are sort of very normal, typical valuation opportunities for the stocks that are out of favor and lots and lots and lots of hope in the stocks that are in favor. Got it. So let's see, Miklos, this one might be a good one for you. Um, now it's a combination of a couple of questions, but essentially with so much of the performance concentrated in a handful of names, are more tech names screening up outside the US for us? Uh, so, so actually not, Peter. Uh, we've actually been having the, the opposite problems because, well, well tech, uh, well, the headlines have really been dominated by U.S. tech's outperformance. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, tech outside of the U.S. has also done well, um, up about 25% year to date. And it's really, you know, been driven by, by that theme that Rich mentioned, just hype and enthusiasm uh, surrounding artificial intelligence. So... I think uh, in our emerging market strategy, we've actually had a couple of stocks that um, we don't necessarily see as uh, exposed to artificial intelligence, but but maybe the the market has seen them. So uh, they've performed quite quite nicely, just uh, and benefited from this enthusiasm. So as a result of that, we've actually been trimming some of those positions, and I'm specifically talking about um, our holdings such as you know Compal Electronics, uh, a manufacturer of uh, notebook uh, PCs and you know, light on a, a Taiwanese uh, semiconductor company. So, so as I said, we've been kind of trimming these positions on the strength. Um, in Europe, um, honestly, like we haven't seen much tech screen up. I think uh, in terms of the tech that does screen up, um, I would say that the themes are, it's really in, concentrated in the, in the IT services space. And I would say the, the two themes that, that I see there are first kind of a more traditional theme that we've seen for the past couple of years of kind of IT services companies that are more focused on, you know, kind of catering or serving uh, on-premise data centers. And there they just continue to face the headwinds as more companies move towards the public cloud and move their data centers to, you know, Amazon or, uh, or Microsoft Azure. Azure. Um, and then the other theme is there are some IT services companies that I think the market's a little bit afraid of will get disrupted uh, by artificial intelligence and there'll just be less of a, a need for, for their services. Um, so that, that kind of remains uh, ongoing. Um, I would say in Europe, our main tech holding is uh, our position in Nokia, uh, which uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's the leading manufacturer of uh, wireless networking equipment companies. Uh, net wireless networking equipment, basically all the equipment that goes into a mobile phone tower. And really there it's more industry specific headwinds that have, have weighed on Nokia, no, namely concerns about a slowdown in the 5G spending cycle, just given that some of their customers are under pressure. Um, you know, we really like the stock. We think that they operate in what's essentially a duopoly or, or oligopoly. Um, on top of that, um, we see them as being a structural share winner as they continue to benefit and capitalize from data security concerns uh, about some of the carriers using Huawei or Chinese-made um, networking equipment. And then uh, the company just has a, a very strong balance sheet. About 15% of its market cap is, is in net cash on the balance sheet. Seems like we have uh, time for one more question. Rich, this could be a good one for you. Um, 
how does the new regime higher for longer and slower growth impact the portfolio? Are we gonna need a longer time horizon for our ideas to come to fruition? Look, I mean, we're back to a normal interest rate environment rather than, and so with, an, with the resultant kind of slower growth that we've embedded in our long-term thinking. So uh, it feels to me like it's a, this is the kind of environment that plays in our favor. You don't need rapid economic growth to drive all this innovation um, and, and, and low interest rates to put giant multiples on those things. We can look at businesses that have high, very high current free cash flows, growing modestly, and get returns that are double-digit returns um, with, with, uh, without making crazy assumptions. So from my perspective, this is our current environment. It's not, it's, it's, it's interesting because value managers have had such different, different performance over this period. And, you know, I think we wrote about this in our quarterly about how the indices, like the Russell 1000 value has 850 stocks in it and the growth has half the number of stocks just because the, they're trying to e equilibrate the market cap. So the big contributors, there's so many that are in the value index, the Russell 1000 value, that a deep value investor can understand. Like you have to pay 25 times earnings for Procter & Gamble or Walmart or Danaher or Abbott Labs and these are the bigger holding, bigger weightings in the Russell 1000 value. So if you, while they're great companies, to call them value is a stretch. And we had the same phenomenon occur in the end of the internet bubble where the value index had all these companies that you would say are not value and people wondered why I didn't put any money in them. Um, after all, they're in the value index. Uh, and, and I think this is probably why we're beating the value index now so handily, because these are uh, not cheap stocks. Um, and, and if you focus on cheap, you're, there's, there's the, the opportunity set is, is very, very normal. I'll use that, the, that language again. So that's my thought. Great. Well, with that, we'll end it. We want to certainly thank everyone for joining us from all my uh, colleagues here at Pazina Investment Management. If we did not get to your question, we promise to follow up. However, if there's anything that we can do for you, please contact your Pazina representative, or you can email us directly at info at So thanks again. Have a good afternoon and hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www.pezina.com. That's www.pezena.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.